Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Kate, how are you? <laughs> I'm in a full deluge of Reply Guys. Uh, oh, Jesus. Yeah, I'm in what a full now? deluge. So, so <laughs> what happened have to was... Kill? <laughs> uh, well, you can't kill anyone... Uh, and apparently you're not even allowed to publicly hope that you wish someone died, even of the coronavirus, even if their negligence has uh, caused the death of over 200,000 people. You can't say that you hope they died. Now, who could we possibly be talking about? Um, I simply yeah, don't I know. know. Yeah, I mean, as much as I'd like to, uh, to turn this into a trivia game, what happened was... Um, on, so, you know, Friday night, we found out that, uh, that, uh, Trump, uh, has COVID, um, which, you know, honestly, it was, no, Thursday night, I guess, we found out that he had COVID. And, um, I saw this tweet from Rachel Maddow, uh, that said, God bless the president and the first lady. Oh my if God. you pray, <laughs> please pray for their speedy and complete recovery and for everyone infected everywhere the virus is horrific and merciless no one would wish its wrath on anyone we must get it spread under control enough uh and i was thinking about that and i was also thinking about this segment that she did on her show uh where she compared being happy that trump has covid to like you know, celebrating that your friend has love lung cancer or something. And it's like, dude, I'm sorry, but my friends aren't, you know, mass murderers or whatever. So I was kind of walking around with this and I was tweeting uh, and I tweeted uh, that um, I, uh, I really don't want it to mistake me for a mean or callous person. So let me just say that I hope Trump dies of COVID, which <laughs> I, you know, I'm not like once really, you know, just wish people die. But this is the person who is responsible for like a gajillion deaths at this yeah. point. If he recovers from this, which I think he will, you know, mm. we're going to see another 200,000 people dead at least, you know? Um, oh, God. I, I mean, yeah. God, I fucking hope not. But I mean, yeah. Uh, I someone had a funny tweet about about the Rachel Maddow tweet. It's like Rachel Maddow tweets out the number for the suicide hotline after Hitler kills himself in the bunker. Yeah, and I just it's like I mean she had that terrible take. Charlotte Clymer had a terrible like like you know this is a terrible disease and we need to be empathetic even though when like you know, Charlotte Clymer did not extend the same, uh, empathy to like average people in Georgia when Georgia's cases were on the rise. Um, and people are just showing themselves with their reaction to this. Yes, he caught coronavirus, but he also like basically summoned it because he went, he did everything he could against the advice of health experts in terms of 
like lack of precautions, not wearing a mask. He proudly did not wear a mask for a long time. I think the first time that we saw him wear a mask was only a few months ago, and this has been going on since March. Um, he, like, sorry, babe, you deserve what you got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's just like, I mean, not to mention, like, all of the people that have been infected at his events in his White House, not just the ghoulish Republican staff members, of which there are many. No, uh, but Kelly this motherfucker is still, still holding rallies and shit. He still yeah. went to a campaign event in, he was exhibiting symptoms and went to a campaign event in New Jersey. Yeah. When he like, was talking about Biden uh, wearing a mask too much at the debate, <laughs> it's just funny to like look back on that moment and be like, that motherfucker had a coronavirus. I Here's know. the thing. I've been getting like tweet storm for like days and days at this point uh, from Republicans. I appeared in like a couple like conservative right wing publications is like, can you believe that this person said this? You know, I fucking quote tweeted by all of these like, you know, Republican ghouls and yeah, I mean, all right, like, I have some patience for the people who are like, every human life has value. It's wrong to wish death on anybody. I can get with that point of view. But none of these people are the people to make that case because no. to them, human life is utterly expendable. Do they give a fuck that people are dying in ICE detention centers? No. no. Do they give a fuck that people are dying of COVID? No. Not they even enough. Not to put a basic little piece of cloth over their mouth. There's like a lot of people who just work in the White House, people in the cleaning staff, people uh, who work uh, in, in the kitchen. Um, On the grounds. Who work there. Yeah, for many yeah. administrations. And, you know, they're, they're all at huge risk now. They're not going to have access to these, like, you know, super expensive experimental treatments that Donald Trump has, you know, a, a lot of people, if they were in the hospital for three days at all, even if it was not in the same luxury accommodations, that would completely bankrupt them, you know, and uh, there's definitely going to be people that lose their family members who are like, you know, in, in some way exposed because of one of these people. And I'm not trying to say that, like, you know, if you get the coronavirus that you're bad like you know there's all kinds of people who get covid and a lot of them are getting them get, getting it at work in situations that they don't have a, a choice in but you know these people have like they have just, all the choices in the world yeah they well they've like flouted the the basic precautions and also you know like really made it a point to to downplay the virus uh to you know make sure that uh people do not take it seriously to make masks into a political issue. And, um, it's just, yeah. Um, yeah, there, I mean, again, much of the president's inner circle has now tested positive. Uh, president Trump, obviously Melania, Hope Hicks, Bill Stephen, Kaylee McEnany, RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, Senator Mike Lee, Senator Tom Tillis, Senator Ron Johnson, Chris Christie. <laughs> Chris Christie is so, that's the funniest one. Just what a, what a Greek tragic figure Chris Christie is. Um, Nicholas Luna, who is 
the president's quote unquote body man, uh, three White House reporters, one White House staffer, Kellyanne Conway, uh, and the Reverend John Jenkins, who is the president of Notre Dame University. Um, and yeah, the I, just Mike Lee is. I'm I'm re- I'm really surprised that Ted Cruz doesn't have it. I, he just seems like he or Marco Rubio, I don't know how either one of them have escaped it, uh, just because they they just seem like the type. Mike Lee is supposed to be one of the quote-unquote smart Republicans. Uh, so, not There that, are again, no smart Republicans. There are no smart Republicans, of course, but and, and obviously this is not like, as we said, it's not like a merit-based issue, but these people have all of the information, they have all of the resources in the world. So um, for them, yeah, I would say <laughs> getting it is the uh, contracting coronavirus is the the result of of their choices and their actions. Um, yikes! I I mean I again he's he's probably going to be fine. He s- somehow is still living despite the, way, the reason he's still living is because. <laughs> He had the best medical care oh, sure. available in the country, you know? Sure. No, no, no. I was, that that's I was gonna, a new point to you. Right, you know? right. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say he's still living despite living off of only fast food and watching, you know, eight plus hours of cable news a day. He's never had a heart attack to my knowledge, which is just cuckoo. I don't know how. I don't know how he, he does it. That's why I think that he's going to ride this thing out. He is... Uh, he's he defies all science i don't i don't get it but someone made an interesting point um about herman cain who has since passed but um, is still tweeting somehow is still tweeting um which is what (laughs) we, we all hope to do i think um tweet from beyond and so but somebody uh tim o'brien um, was tweeting about the timeline of, of Herman Cain's coronavirus. Uh, he attended a Trump rally mask list on uh, June 24th, tested positive for coronavirus about a week later. About a week after that, said he was improving. A few days later, said that his doctors seem happy. A week after that, he said he's really getting better. And then three days after that, on July 30th, he died. Um, so th- this obviously can move very quickly. Also, Kate, did you see the the videos that Trump has been releasing from inside his hospital presidential suite? I saw one. He says um, Americans love what's happening right now, which is like maybe one of the funniest things I've ever heard him say. And... Um, yeah, he, you know what I will say? He doesn't have all of his makeup on in those videos and he looks more human. He doesn't look worse per se without all of his makeup. You think that the, the orange color that our, uh, our lib friends love to ridicule is that a result of the makeup? I think it, well, I, yeah, I think he loves, he loves bronzer. He loves his makeup. Um, yeah. he was on TV for many years, just getting his makeup done. I think he got used to it. Um, I hear is something that, so I've been getting like, like tons and tons of death threats from people 
basically, you know, how dare you say that you would enjoy it <laughs> if Donald Trump died? I'm going to come kill you myself. You know, it's like, wow, uh, cool moral high ground there. But my my favorite comment was someone posted on my Instagram. I haven't been locking, I haven't locked any of my accounts down because honestly, I, it's like, I think, I think some of this stuff is pretty funny because it's like such a, these people are always like obsessed with cancel culture and comedians should not be canceled for jokes. And I've always thought, you know, like, you're just like, you're just trying to like launder your, it, you're not, it, you're, you don't care about free speech. Like you're not. You're not looking at the way that, uh, you know, corporations will censor employees or the cops will beat the shit out of protesters. You just want to say something that's really fucked up, right? Yeah. You know? um, but uh, so I've, I've just been enjoying all of these people kind of self-owning. But one person commented, what I have come to realize is that when you come across an IG account with pictures of cats, there's a very high probability that they are a sick and twisted leftist. Anyone who doubts this, take a look for yourself and browse IG. And um, yeah, that's just so funny to me to think that. I mean, I don't know if the implication is that the cats are leftists. And I would have to say that my thought on that is probably no. Cats are not, they're not communal animals. You know, they're not, they don't share. They really, they don't, they <laughs> They never really think of the common good. Pretty much, not only do they believe in private property, they believe <laughs> everything is their private property. Uh, I would say, like, libs at best from, from cats, I think, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think cats, maybe the only point in in cats' uh, column for being leftist is that they would never work with the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nor would they ever work at all, though. I mean, I, I can't really imagine maybe they're, a world. Well, maybe they just want... They're past the scarcity mindset. Yeah, they're past that. They, they're, they've they already evolved beyond the labor model. Yeah. <laughs> the sleep theory of value. Yeah. <laughs> Resting. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that person is ultimately correct. If Especially if the sample set is just you and me. <laughs> sick and twisted leftists sick yeah, and twisted know. leftists obviously this this news about trump having coronavirus has been so all-consuming that um i think amy coney barrett's pending ascension to the supreme court has been kind of like pushed to the side for a moment but they're circulating um footage from her uh, federal judicial appointment hearing in 2017 where actually uh, Al Franken was questioning her RIP and she gave so she accepted money and gave speeches Um, she spoke for this hate group that supports making homosexuality a crime in the U.S. (laughs) like that's another way where i'm just like yeah there is this administration there is no the floor is is just keeps getting lower and lower and lower yeah i mean Um, and you know like this like it can be easy sometimes in 
Trump's administration to forget about the more kind of like a evangelical type fascism that existed really strongly under George W. Bush. And, you know, it's um, Amy Coney Barrett is, you know, she's prime example of how much power these people still hold, you know, it's like the worst of all possible worlds. I saw this thing that was circulating on Twitter today about, it was in the Federalist about like, you know, how, um, Amy Coney Barrett is like a great <laughs> yeah. example of a woman who's like submissive to her husband and that's romantic and stuff. And I'm like, do you guys really have to blow up your fucking sex fantasies <laughs> into this whole li- lifestyle where you take away all the rest of our rights? Like, can't you just please admit to yourself that, you know, you, you like to be ordered around in bed a little yeah. bit. A lot of us like that. I don't have to make that into a, a lifestyle in, in which I uh, try to oppress marginalized people on behalf <laughs> of my weird sex shit, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I think we were talking about that a little bit last week or the week, bef- week before, but that that uh, interdenominational Christian fringe group, people of praise that she belongs to, it's like specifically about man's dominion over woman and it's so fucking weird (laughs) we had a great guest this week who just wrote uh, a really interesting and well-researched and you know uh, upsetting book about the white supremacist movement in the united states and obviously this is a really dark and upsetting topic uh but her research was uh incredible and you know i think i learned a lot from this conversation obviously super relevant right now when we have uh, a president of the United States that is telling the Proud Boys, a white supremacist group that started on Compound Media, by the way, uh, a right-wing podcast network in New York, (laughs) Uh, not my friends, um, that, um, you know, they need to uh, stand back and stand by. I mean, it's just one of the things we got into in this interview is like, why it's mistaken to dismiss the this growing movement that has uh, produced murderers, you know, uh, as like a kind of small fringe thing. Um, she really goes into the uh, reasons that this actually needs to be taken really seriously. Um, so yeah, please enjoy this interview with Talia Lehman. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited today to be speaking with Talia Lavin, and I'm so excited that you're willing to come on. Thank you so much, Talia. Oh, thanks so much, Kate. Let's talk about your book. Um, so you have just written, it's, it looks like a, a really huge and comprehensive book called culture warlords and uh it is uh the subtitle is my journey into the dark web of white supremacy so for folks who haven't read it yet which is probably most people because it it's uh not out yet it's on pre-order give us like a a quick overview and then we'll dive in from there yeah i'm like in this terrifying limbo where i'm like i have put you know two years of my life and a great deal of my sanity into this book. And like maybe three people have read it, um, you know, who are like reviewing it or whatever. Um, and my family, um, and, but yeah, it's coming out. So, uh, 
quick. So it comes out October 13th, um, right in the depths of spoopy season. Um, and folks, it is spooky, kind of. I mean, uh, it's about white supremacy and it's more specifically about how white supremacy spreads on the internet and what it looks like when it does. Um, you know, it's a, <clears throat> it's not like a high tech, super techie focused book, but um, what it is is about what white supremacist communities look like online. And in order to do the investigations in my book, you know, so I'm a Jew. Uh, I have a big Twitter account where I mouth off against white supremacists fairly often. Um, and since 2017, I've been writing articles critical of the white power movement. Um, and so uh, in order to do a lot of the reporting in the book, I mean, some of it is just pretty straightforward asking people for comment and whatnot going, you know, uh, in like I went in person to at least one far right event, <laughs> but um because of who I am and because my reputation preceded me, um, I had to do a lot of more gonzo shit. Um, like I had to embed in these white nationalist chat rooms um, under false identities. Um, I did a little bit of catfishing on a white supremacist dating site. Um, that there's a white supremacist dating site. Ugh. Well, every pot has a lid, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and basically what I aimed to do was to produce not a comprehensive look at the current sprawling, um, organized racist movement in the U S but to provide snapshots of what it looks like at moments in time. Uh, and most of my research was conducted in 2019. Um, and it's sort of a book that comes from a personal perspective it doesn't shy away from the fact that like you know i don't try to square the circle and be a like objective reportery and, and be like let's consider the perspective of these hate groups um yeah. it's more like i'm like very open with the fact that like i came in mad and what i saw made me angrier and like what i saw warped me as a person <laughs> like you know i spent a year in these chats like Hitler did nothing wrong and exposed the nose and, you know, Holocaust too. And, you know, um, chats devoted to Dylan roof, you know, glorifying him chats devoted to like how wonderful the Christchurch shooter was like all, all these, all these things. And, and so, you know, for over a year of my life, I kind of, was really mainlining this kind of vitriol um, basically so that you wouldn't have to do it. And I that could sounds, explain. Yeah. It sounds incredibly hard to do. Like um, how did you like take care of yourself while you were doing that and not, not feel like so overwhelmed that, you know, I mean, I, I would imagine like that there would be times in that where it would just be like, fuck, I, I cannot do this well bold assumption that i took care of myself there <laughs> i mean i don't know i i have a panic disorder um i uh <laughs> like i started collecting swords 
I don't know. I have like five swords now. Um, you know, I've met a lot of sword guys, but I have not yet met a sword lady and I'm very stoked. Yes. Yeah. You can check out my Twitter profile picture. It's me with like a four foot broadsword. So Hell yeah. I, I, I guess that was like a little psychological safety blanket for me. <laughs> Like, I'm like, if anyone comes into my apartment and tries to hurt me, I will at least have the chance to try to bury three feet of cold steel in their stomach. Um, so that's a psychological coping mechanism I had. Um, <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, first of all, sword sword ladies exist and we want a girlfriend. Um so any butches listening to this program are welcome to contact me via DM. Um, but yeah, um, sorry. Um, you know, it was hard. And especially as a Jew, it was hard because like, you know, the Holocaust has a very direct relationship to my family. Like uh, my mother's parents were Holocaust survivors. I lost an aunt during the Holocaust, like, she was a baby and she was in the woods while they were running and uh, she died. Like it's very close to me. And that served as both an, a, like a means to keep my moral center intact and never like devolve into sort of, it's like easy to rubberneck and gop and just be like, these guys are so weird. <laughs> um, and for me, like I, you know, the fact that my identity was so targeted and like I was so personally targeted as well, you know, that I've really come under, um, I've been under the scrutiny of the far right for years, really enabled me to keep my eye on the ball, which is like, this is a dangerous movement whose goal is violence. Yeah. And not, yeah. not get bogged down in the semantics of who presents themselves as what and to treat every you know official communique from these figures you know with like a tequila margarita's worth of grains of salt in part because i was also observing what they said in private <laughs> you know what they said when they thought they were alone because they weren't because i was watching them <laughs> and what are some things that you learned during this research that surprised you? So one of the things that was interesting to me, and I think my, I mean, the, the broadest message that I would want to convey to people and I do urge you to read the book. Um, you can, you can pre-order it on, on Amazon or IndieBound or Bookshop or from your local bookstore, really anywhere that books are available. But one of the big messages is like, I think one of the big fallacies, and to, me, to my mind, it is quite a dangerous one, um, that people fall prey to when they think about organized white supremacy and when they think about what a white supremacist is, is there's this, you know, perennial... Uh, idea of like, oh, it's it's toothless Cletus in his mother's basement. It's someone who is poor. It's someone who is uneducated. And part of that has to do with the media portrayal that like wants to sort of offer 
this economic anxiety explore like example or you know reason for why people uh fall prey to these movements but you know as we just discussed with QAnon like the only perquisite is loneliness or anger and those those uh are pretty universal like it doesn't matter how well off you are it doesn't matter how well educated you are you can feel lonely and you can feel disenfranchised and you can feel alienated and so there is no socioeconomic class there is no geographical region there is no level of educational attainment that has a monopoly on being part of the organized white supremacist white power movement um and so that relates to sort of what was my biggest surprise as i was you know in embedded in these horrible scabrous chat rooms um is that one of the things that I saw was really like a lot of study and a lot of cultural production. Like you had white supremacists making their own audiobooks and distributing them, like reading out fascist texts and some it's and not even like just the obvious, like the Turner Diaries or Mein Kampf, but like deeper cuts, like, you know, um, they were trading PDFs of like, this Romanian interwar fascist that I hadn't even heard of um, sort of letter to his disciples. Um, They were, they were making audiobooks. They were, they were trading PDFs of books from survivalist guides to 19th century phrenology texts to, you know, the classics like the international Jew or the protocols of the elders of Zion, but also just like, history books, you know, history books written by white supremacists of the 19th century. Like they were developing an alternate history curriculum. And because the history of the West, the recent history of the West even is so marinated in racism and anti-Semitism, it was not hard for them to find alternative proof texts um, at all. And so they were in real time, creating history curricula um, that, you know, then worked to to shore up their certainty. Um, you know, but that, I would say that surprised me, the level of erudition and the level of desire to have a book club, to read, to find commonality through text. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting like DIY audiobooks in my like surveillance of white nationalist chat rooms. Yeah. So I think that just speaks to the point that like every time you say those people, Cletus in the basement, uh, you know, like toothless masturbating basement men, you are absolving yourself. You are absolving people who look like you. You are saying that no one who has been to the schools I have or live in the nice neighborhood I have or have the jo- has the job I have um, could possibly be a white supremacist. No one who's nice, no one who's successful could be a white supremacist, could engage in these patterns of thought or potentially engage in this violence. And that's just a f- falsehood. 
I mean, plenty of the, even some of the people that have engaged in acts of terrorist violence have been from well-off households and quote unquote, normal suburban families. Like, so I think this really hard to shake desire to otherize white supremacists is both like understandable, but it's also super damaging. And it also blinds you from seeing white supremacy as it unfolds in your community. And it makes you less useful in fighting it. One thing we were talking about before the show, uh, as we were discussing your book, you were mentioning that on a lot of these boards, there's a fixation on paganism and the crusades specifically. And I was wondering what the hell that's about. Why do they like pagan shit? Yeah. So I have a whole chapter in the book called that good old time religion, which is about religious iconography in the white supremacist movement. And you have sort of two strains there where you have, um, some white supremacists consider themselves worshipers of Odin who worship the Norse pantheon and some are extremist Christians. Um, you know, some, uh, a lot of them embrace, there's a particular slogan from, uh, the crusades of the 12th century, um, Deus Wult, God wills it. Um, and, uh, that shows up in a lot of white supremacist materials. Um, there are also crusader iconography, um, particularly the blood red Templar cross is like a, a pretty big thing that shows up at white nationalist rallies. I mean, it was very present in like at unite the right, um, Charlottesville in 2017. Um, and so (laughs) it's interesting because these are groups that are like sort of on surface opposed, like, you know, the Christians and the pagans of history, like didn't necessarily love one another. But what I uncovered was like, these are basically surface aesthetic preferences in service of the same political goals. Um, But it was interesting to me to look into like why. So I talked to some medieval historians who are absolutely fantastic. Um, Like there is no one more pissed off uh, and like more educated and wonderful to speak to than a medieval historian who is fucking pissed that their field of study has been hijacked by like Nazis. Um, so highly recommended to <laughs> go find a medieval historian who seems disgruntled and talk to them about white supremacy. Um, that was, you know, a fun tactic for me, but so it's like you have two reasons, you have two strains and two reasons. So the crusades become a, a picture of, you know, a, a, a point of fascination for white supremacists because to them, it is a sort of like grand lost cause. And I, I say lost cause in the style of like the way people talk about the loss of the Confederacy. Um, you know, it was an occasion in which you know, a lot of it is anachronistic because whiteness, as we understand it today, didn't really exist in like the 1100s. Um, but what it was, was like, let's go out and slay the infidel. Let's in this like very masculine way that appeals to like the sort of misogynistic, toxically masculine 
um, milieu of a lot of these white supremacist groups. Um, like, first of all, the Crusades, at least the Crusades as they're popularly understood by white supremacists, um, basically involved a civilizational total war where the noble Christian warriors of the West set out to defeat the swarthy infidel through murder. And so that plays really neatly into the Islamophobia, the like rampant uh, scaremongering about refugees, many of whom are Muslim, uh, and this idea that like we are inheritors of this noble warrior tradition. You know, every uh, nationalist movement and this sort of pan whiteness, white nationalism is no exception, needs a founding mythos. And for these extremist Christians um, or like extremists who adopt Christian iconography, um, they are saying we are the heirs of the crusaders. Like we will adopt their shields. We will adopt their iconography because we too want to go out and get our hands bloody with the blood of the infidel. And like that uh. was quite, that was quite literalized because um, so Brenton Tarrant who shot 50 Muslims to death in New Zealand in Christchurch um, in his manifesto made repeated references to the crusades. Um, and he actually quoted Pope Urban II, um, you know, who was, who was a driver of a crusade, uh, you know, exhorting Christian warriors to go out and like kill the Turk um, and wrote, you know, on his gun that he used to, to shoot people. Uh, references to different crusades battles, like the battle of tours in 732. Um, so it's like very literal. <laughs> it's the sense of like, we are the, the, the masculine brutal inheritors of an existential fight to save the West. That's like how they, they posit it. Um, so I have a kind of a follow-up question for you there. You mentioned masculinity uh as being part of part of this or a part of you know like it's it's just a it seems like this kind of um particular notion of masculinity is uh and by the way you know i would consider it to be a very like a toxic variety is part of what's attracted people to this and before the show we were also talking about like uh you doing some of your research like on um on an incel board and i was wondering like is is misogyny like the entry point to these ideas for people uh or you know is it just like a an interest in common that uh a lot of these people just happen to just be so full of hate that they're uh really into um hating women as well or like what's the relationship between uh like a very intense kind of uh, toxic masculinity and white supremacy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people talk about misogyny as a gateway hate to white nationalism. 
I don't like to use that terminology because misogyny, like at its most poisonous, as you, you see in the incel community, is um, fate is is can can often be fatal in its own right. Yeah. And has led to terrorist attacks in its own right. That being said, with the exception of Islamophobia, it's like probably the most socially acceptable form of naked hatred to display. Um, And misogyny does form an entree in the sense that a lot of the people who I in the book call launderers of extremist ideas, like, you know, people like Stefan Molyneux or Tim Pool or Andy Ngo, like these people who are who present on the surface, like, you know, they'll, they, they start reeling people in to right wing ideas by basically producing videos that are like, you know, the ghostbusters are all women now, like that, that's an attack on you. Um, You know, where they posit like feminism as sort of a zero sum game, taking away your rights. (laughs) And, um, And from there, once you have created a group that it's okay to hate and it's okay to harass, once you have engaged in harassment against a hated group, um, you know, women, feminists, uh, then it's a shorter walk to saying, okay, well, I've been lied to all my life about the idea that feminism is just about equality and is, you know, generally kind of a benign force or even a noble one. So what else have I been lied to about? Have I been lied to about black people? Have I been lied to about Jews? Have I been lied to about immigration? And there are so many people who are eager to tell you that you have. Um, So I would say, yes, like toxic masculinity, and hatred of women uh, form like a huge core of both the recruiting process and the internal dialogue of white supremacist groups, which is not to say that there aren't women who are white supremacists. One of the admitted sort of failures of the book, um, to my mind, is that despite quite a lot of trying, I really had a lot more trouble penetrating um, female white supremacist groups. Um, I think they're just slightly cannier and more cautious than their, frankly, like uh, OPSEC dumb as shit male counterparts. Um, but Sayward Darby is an author who wrote a wonderful book called Sisters in Hate that does sort of a case a series of case studies of women in the white nationalist movement so i highly recommend that book as well um and that's already out um so it's not to say that women don't exist in the white nationalist movement they do um their numbers are smaller but they do exist um but i think toxic masculinity and like when you look inside the chats you have this sort of relentless puerile uh like homoerotic and homophobic like jocular sort of way of talking to one another um that's sort of like if you had to pull up a dictionary definition of toxic masculinity like half the shit i was observing uh really fits that bill um 
So yeah, like the, this idea of being a warrior for the white race and like, you know, enacting masculine violence is like a huge draw for a lot of these people. Um, you know, and it's a huge recruiting tactic is like, if you feel lost, if you feel purposeless, if you feel alienated, not necessarily for socioeconomic reasons, just because like who amongst us has not been beset by ennui? <laughs> um, like, why don't you come take up arms and become a savior of the white race? I mean, that's like a big selling point. Um, and just to go back to like paganism for a second, just cause this, this, I really get a kick out of this. Um, a lot of white supremacist pagans, um, are, <laughs> they embrace paganism because Jesus Christ was Jewish and they're oh too anti-Semitic to be Christian. Oh my God. That's, and that's so funny to me. It's like, yeah. You can, you can literally be Jesus and that's not enough for some people. You're just a kike. Um, which was so, I mean, that was like one of those things where I'm like, my eyes popped out of my head and I'm like, I got to write about this. Um, but also, you know, a lot of this is owed to like pop culture depictions of like the crusaders and the Vikings and knights and shit. Like, you know, they're, they're super masculine. They attack their enemies. Uh, they're brutal raiders. And like, so one of the events that I was sort of like spying on the plotting, like the planning chats out, it wound up ultimately falling apart because white supremacists uh, love infighting almost as much as they love hating Jews. And they also love accusing each other of being crypto Jews, which I think is funny. Um, it, like it was this fight night that was going to take place like an MMA fighting bout between white supremacist Christians and white supremacist pagans. Um, and I was there like undercover as like, I claimed to be like some dude from West Virginia willing to offer rides um, to like the fight, the rumble and the bumble fuck, which is what I called it. It was like going to be somewhere in Kentucky. Um, but they were raising money for Augustus Invictus, Augustus Soul Invictus, who was like a white supremacist lawyer uh, who was like running for president on an explicitly white supremacist platform. Um, and he's a Satanist, Augustus Invictus. So they were like, who ran against Marco Rubio in, in Florida. Um, but like, his run was sort of derailed by the fact that he admitted to drinking goat blood as like part of his religious practice. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. So one of the things I was eavesdropping on was like the, the, the event planning for this. And it was like, all of them were cool with like fundraising for a Satanist white supremacist presidential candidate. They were just going to do it by sort of explore exploiting the surface aesthetic differences between their ideologies um and like basically the white like the pagan white supremacists were gonna go like sacrifice to odin before the battle uh and the christians were gonna like pray to christ for you know the destruction of their heathen enemies yeah 
like yeah, it's 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 wacky it was a weird world to be immersed in for a year um but like the the long and short of it is these are largely aesthetic differences um but both utilize the tactic that's very effective for white supremacists which is to draw on a larger mythological history that you sort of um retrofit into contemporary uh like categories of whiteness and whiteness defending itself so one of the things that has frustrated me recently online as you know we both are uh (laughs) online a lot is i've seen this trend among some centrists but also even some leftists to kind of dismiss uh, these movements as being, you know, oh, it's it's really small. It's like a hundred people, um, and uh, just being, you know, like just uh, just kind of implying that it's not uh, a serious threat. It's not or not something that people should be um, focusing on or strategizing against. And I, I think, you know, I see it really differently. And I was wondering how, you know you feel about it after spending a couple years researching these communities is this something that like how how big is it like you know to what degree should people be worried about uh these movements expanding um i mean obviously it's like already incredibly dangerous as it is but you know what's your response to people who are want to say like this this isn't a big thing um yeah i I, i've I've definitely noticed the people who are like oh this is just a media creation this is you know just like it's not that big a deal and to them i would say like the single biggest mass casualty event in the u.s between uh pearl harbor and 9-11 was the oklahoma city bombing in the 90s by timothy mcveigh and that's often cast as like a lone wolf event that he was this lone extremist in fact, as borne out by the research of Kathleen Ballou, the author of the excellent bring, book, Bring the War Home, it was part of the white power movement. It was like directly born out of and aided by the white power movement. And it killed 168 people in a bombing. And in the last number of years, we've had, you know, a mass shooting in a synagogue. We've had the attack in El Paso. We've, you know, we've had the Christchurch shooting. Um we had the shooting in San Diego, like, you know, I would say numerically, I think it is larger than people say. It's not just like 200 people. I mean, even just like what the unscientific measure of like how many people are in the telegram chats I was revealing where I was in like 90 telegram chats, it, it wound up being around 10,000 people. I mean, with some overlap granted, but you know, counting it up, that's like a fair number of people and and there are a lot of lot more people who might not be that online enough to be on telegram but who are fellow travelers who are sympathizers but like it only takes one person to perform a mass casualty event directly linked to and inspired by the white supremacist movement writ large um so how many mass casualty events are you willing to shrug off is one answer that I have. Um, The other answer is like, this is a movement that is growing. This is a movement that has found itself 
functionally unchecked by either law enforcement or social media companies or any of the quote unquote adults in the room. Um, it's a movement that, you know, specifically is designed to appeal to people who are like alienated and who are looking for a grander cause to engage in. And that's a lot of fucking people, you know? Uh, and I think dismissing it when you dismiss this as unserious, um, what you are saying is the lives of the people they threaten Jews, black people, Muslims, trans people, gay people, um, are just not that important to protect. And that's a pretty big condemnation for me. Like that's a no for me, dog. <laughs> it yeah. fucking matters. It fucking yeah. matters that you can't be a Jew online without being attacked, you, that you can't be black online without white supremacists potentially doxing you, potentially murdering you. You know, like these are really scary people. These are people who are like perennially in a cauldron all day where they just heat each other up to the boiling point with this kind of uh, rhetoric um, that always, 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 always is leads towards violence. Like violence is the, the nectar of this movement. Um, it's the sine qua non of this movement. And so how many racially motivated mass casualty events are you willing to brush off? Because for me, the answer is none. Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement with you there. I was wondering, you know, one thing that I think, you know, a lot of people, including myself, have been frustrated by um, is the way that the New York Times has reported on white supremacists, like, a, you know, kind of trying to, you know, just like, oh, Nazis go to the grocery store and eat cereal. Like, can you believe how normal these guys are? And you know, obviously that's a, a really terrible way of, of reporting on, uh, on these folks. But um, are there, are there general principles that you think that journalists covering the far right should abide by in order to not unintentionally amplify these groups um, or bring, God forbid, like new people into their movements? Well, a lot of people I noticed were like sharing Proud Boys channels without censoring out their names. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> um, it's a hard road to walk, right? Like they want to be boogeymen. They want to be the scariest thing on the block. Um, and I think it's incumbent on journalists to not indulge that in them. You know, it's, it's a hard road to walk. You want to take a serious threat seriously, but you don't want to allow them to use your coverage to say, look at us. We're so scary. And like you should join if you want to scare and hurt people. Um, you know, that's a tough one. I would say, with regards to the sort of sympathetic soft focus, Oh my God, I can't believe he makes pasta. Um, one of the things that was sort of a persistent through line for me and that just like came home and came home and came home to me throughout my coverage is that, yes, these are human people. Every single person that I surveilled, that I covered, that I talked to who were engaged in like some really egregious shit was a human person. 
um, who every day woke up, did the stuff we do, puts on pants, eats food. Like, and what they did was a series of human choices where every day they chose to engage in evil. Every day they chose to engage in communities that promote hate and promote violence. Um, And again, I think the biggest mistake that journalists make that people make is otherizing white supremacists, assuming they are inhuman monsters. They are human. They are human monsters. (laughs) Do not be surprised that they are human. Do not be surprised that human people can make very fucking terrible choices. Humans that look like you. Humans that you recognize parts of yourself in. That does not absolve them. Their humanity does not absolve them of the choices that they make. Um, And in fact, to my mind, their humanity condemns them further. You know, that they have made an infinite series of choices that have led them down a dark and irredeemable path. Yeah. Um, One can hope that they eventually break away and see it for the endless pit of violence and cruelty that it is. But I'm not sitting around waiting for their redemption, nor do I see my own role as like facilitating that redemption. What I would like to see is a reimposition of the social cost of of racism. What I would like to see is every person who reads my book, (laughs) but also who just like takes a good, long, hard look at what the organized white power movement is is to say, I will fight against it by creating community. I will fight against it by reimposing the social cost of this type of antisocial behavior in my community. Um, And I will do my best to fight against it where I live and where I am. Um, You know, every willing executioner in every fascist movement has been a human person and a normal person who, uh, you know, has kids, goes to work or whatever is just as capable of engaging in atrocity as the monster you imagine. And like, and unless you accept that you absolve yourself um, and you absolve people who look like you. And that is a great and dangerous mistake. So before we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to convey to our listeners about what you learned during this research? I mean, I would say that's that I've hit my major my major talking points. Um, I think if you're looking for a book that is pretty unvarnished, it's not uh overly laden with academic jargon despite me off the cuff using words like prima facie and and shit like it's pretty readable uh i did some really scary and self-endangering shit (laughs) um uh for this book i got really really deep in the muck of the white nationalist movement um and i also think it's fairly entertaining um in that i try to slip in as much humor as i can Um, you know, it's a book about the far right. So it's like not going to be a knee slapper, but I do my best to make it readable. And, um, uh, and so 
I think if you're looking to understand where we are as a country right now, where you are as someone who takes part in the social media landscape um, and how these groups influence the ways we talk and the threat they pose, um, you should buy Culture Warlords, which is available at every major book retailer and also as an audiobook uh, that I read. So if you liked my voice, you can hear it for eight hours. <laughs> and when does it come out? Uh, it comes out October 13th. So in like less oh, than yes, two weeks. You said that before. Our, well, yeah, um... it comes out in 11 days from this but i'm not sure when this podcast will be released uh I um, think in three days okay so it days. comes out yeah. in <laughs> less than 11 days okay um, i'm math good it comes um, out in eight days you can pre-order it pre-orders are important for lots of different metrics from publishers and um i would be honored if you did um and thank you so much for having me on Oh, thank you so much. And for listeners who want to follow you on social media, what's your, where can we find you there? Yeah. So, uh, I'm on Twitter. That's my, my big social media. I am helplessly addicted to the hell site. It is at chick underscore in underscore Kiev. It's a horrible username. That was a pun I made when I was living in Kiev, but it's also a pun on like chicken Kiev. The oh, dish. this is the first time I got that. The pun. Yeah, it's yeah. a really stupid handle. But like, if I change it, I lose my blue check, and then I, I like it. I grow yeah. ill and die. Um, terrible. Uh, but you can just find me by searching my name, Talia T A L I A Laven L A V I N. I'm also on Instagram as Talia Interalia, which is Latin for Talia, among other things, because I'm a fucking nerd. And um, you can also listen to my podcast, Moby Dick Energy, which is a chapter by chapter breakdown of the book Moby Dick by Herman Melville, because um, I'm cool and sexy. So that's that's me. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, this was just a really great conversation. I learned a lot and uh, I can't wait to check out your book. Thank you for doing that incredibly difficult journalism. Um, yeah, I, I, I went into hell, so you didn't have to, is my selling point. So um, <laughs> enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is yours.